Lawrence, what would you do if you had a million dollars? Well, what about you now? What would you do? Nothing. Nothing, huh? I would relax. I would sit on my ass all day. I would do nothing. Well, you don't need a million dollars to do nothing, man. Take a look at my cousin. He's broke, don't do shit. Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. One Broken Cog Podcast. The straight shooter is back, fully loaded, cocked, locked, and ready to rock. That's me unleashing my inner teenager. I love to do that once in a while. And on that note, my guest today shows individuals and companies how to tap into their true selves to feel their happiest and most fulfilled, all by playing. And he's none other than Jeff Harry. Now, Jeff has worked with Google, Microsoft, Southwest Airlines, Adobe, the NFL, Amazon, and Facebook, helping their staff to infuse more play into the day-to-day. Now, Jeff is an international speaker who's presented at conferences such as Inbound, South by Southwest, and Australia's PauseFest, showing audiences how major issues in the workplace can be solved using play. Now, Jeff was selected by Bamboo HR and Engagedly as one of the top 100 HR influencers of 2020 for his organizational development work around dealing with toxic people in the workplace. Now, his play work has most recently been featured in the New York Times article, How Do We Add More Play to Our Grown-Up Life, Even Now? He's also been featured on AJ Plus Soul Pancake, the San Francisco Chronicle, and CNN. Jeff, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the One Broken Cock Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited about this. Jeff, I love what you're doing here. And I, you know, I got to say, I think you and I are cut from the same cloth. I always tell people that you know, I go to work and I act like an adult for like 8 to 10 hours and go home and go back to being a 12-year-old again. Mm, <laughs> you know? yep. I tell my kids, daddy has to go act like an adult now, see you after work, right? So <laughs> you and I, we're, we're cut from the same cloth. I'd love for you to share with the audience about the decision to pursue this venture and the courage it must have taken to actually go for it and start Rediscover Your Play. Sure. So, you know, I'll tell you the origin story, the, you know, the Batman story, right? So um, when I was in third grade, I saw the movie Big with Tom Hanks. Do you remember that movie? Oh, my goodness. Do I remember it? Right. Yes. So that was like one of my favorite movies. And in that movie, he he's dancing on a piano and then he gets offered to play with toys for a living. Like that was his job. And I was like, that's a job. You know, so I'm in third grade. I'm like, dude, that is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. I'm going to be a toy designer. That's what's happening. So I started writing toy companies in third grade and I just did not stop. Um, and they most of the time just sent me rejection letters back. I mean, I was spamming these places before I knew spam was even a thing. Right. And then by sophomore year, a company wrote me back and was like, you should go into mechanical engineering. I listened to them. I probably should not have, but I went, went to Tufts university in Boston, you know, graduated and then, and then got into my dream industry. I got into the toy industry. And I don't know if you've ever gotten whatever you wanted in life and then been so disappointed when you get there, but like, that's what it felt like. Like, you know, there was, I was in a cubicle, padded walls, you know, there was no fun, no play, no, no adults high-fiving, no kids, no toys. Like it, it was nothing of what they showed in the movie big. Um <laughs> Seemed like it seemed like they were selling microwaves or socks. Like it didn't really matter what they were selling, right? They just wanted to make money. So I remember leaving New York, moving to the Bay Area, piddling around for a little bit, working from some other toy companies and just being disappointed again and again. 
And then I remember like quitting and then looking for a job just like, just because I was like, I just want to find something fun that I can do. And I found a job on Craigslist where they were this small organization teaching kids engineering with Lego, but they were playing for a living. That's all they were doing. They were playing and getting paid to play. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to get paid to play. There were only seven people there. They paid $150 a week. It was like a joke of a job, part-time, all that jazz. But then I stuck with them and I was like, listen, I'm going to make this into a legitimate job. And then I stayed with them for the next 15 years and we grew the largest Lego inspired STEM organization like in the US. And the way we did it was we just played. And what I mean by that is like, we had no idea what we were doing. We made it up as we went along. We had no business plan. We picked cities because they were fun. We picked people because they were fun. We experimented all the time. We failed miserably and kept going. But because we, we started in the Bay Area, we got the attention of the tech world, right? So Facebook, Google, Adobe, Southwest, Amazon, like all of them. Actually, Southwest is in Dallas. But, you know, and, and they were like, hey, do you do team building events? And we were like, of course we do, even though we didn't, right? And we just said yes to everything. And then for the next like eight, nine years, I worked with these top tech companies trying to create and infuse more play into their work. But what I found was that at the same time, they wanted to be disruptive, they wanted to be agile and innovative. They had not created a play-oriented environment for their staff to actually take risks. So I created Rediscover Your Play, combining positive psychology and play to address the deeper issues that these companies were tiptoeing around, like how to um, deal with toxicity at work, how to deal with office politics, how to have a hard conversation, how to deal with inner critic stuff, how to get your staff in flow, all these issues that they were tiptoeing around. I was just like, let's go right at them, but let's use play to do it. I love that. That's amazing. Now I got to ask you, what's your favorite scene in the movie big? <laughs> Ooh, that's a great question. I'm, I think as much as I love the piano scene and that's such a powerful scene and one of the most famous scenes in like cinema history, one of my favorite scenes is they're in a boardroom, they're playing with this toy building and everyone's just like, yeah, the quarterly results on the toy building, you know, we can make this much and like, you know, earnings could get 30% higher. And then, you know, Tom Hanks's character just turns to everyone. He's like, I don't get it. And the guy's like, what, what do you, what don't you get? And he's like, I just don't get it. Like what's so fun about a building? Like, I, like it, it just sits there. He's like, why don't we make something like a bug or something else? And then everyone starts nerding out. And the meeting goes from being really corporate to all these guys and all these people just, just having fun and being like, yeah, and the bug could shoot slime and everyone's having fun. And the one corporate guy's like, I just don't understand what's happening. Why is this, <laughs> this kid like ruining this for me? So that was such a great scene for me because that's literally what I do when I walk into businesses. No, it's wonderful. And the perspective was instead of thinking about what would make more money, it's what would be more fun. And they all got yeah. involved and it was so cool. I, you remember that, that scene with Tom Hanks and Diane Perkins? I swear, my friend and I, we would rewind that scene over and over and laugh at how awkward. You remember that, how awkward that was, that scene? It was hilarious. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's ridiculous. The funniest thing I've ever seen that, at that point in my life. 
But, uh, you know, I love how the tech company has embraced this. You know, I worked at a company called OpenX and it was, you know, Silicon Valley times 10. It was foosball tables and video yep. game consoles and, you know, snacks. I mean, it was full-blown embrace your individuality, your play. You can be mistake-friendly. Everyone was supportive. The retention rate was so high. Happiness was high. You know, the productivity was an all-time high. Yeah. Tech companies are fully on board with this. Do you think other companies and other industries are going to be receptive to this or have they been receptive to it? Well, so, I mean, as much as tech companies are, I mean, they don't get me wrong. Like when I talk about play, they, they, some of these companies see play as frivolous, but when I talk about flow and I talk about how you, you can get the most out of your staff when they're in flow, all of a sudden they perk up. Right. And you know, when I'm talking to any company, like I ran a workshop recently for the Department of Homeland Security, you know, that's not the most fun organization, but they're open to it. Like, so, but what I say to them is I, is I, I quote the Stephen Johnson book, you know, where he says the future is where people are having the most fun. And if you look at any organization right now that's thriving, any company that's thriving during 2020, that's adaptable, resilient, you know, the TikToks, the Hulus, the Disney Pluses, the, you know, the Netflix, they're having fun. Like I just saw a documentary with Jeff Bezos, which, you know, I don't really like that guy that much, but when he started Amazon, he was tackling the most interesting issues that tech Guys were just like, I will work for free with this guy because he was barely paying anything at the time because he's tackling really interesting stuff. The fun is happening over there. So for any organization, you know, when they're like, well, we don't have time for, for play. And it's just like, actually, you don't have time not to play because if you don't adapt to this new normal and start experimenting and being resilient and trying new things out, you're going to become the next blockbuster. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you think there's a connection, Jeff, with school and work in a sense where in school, you know, I always make this joke that, you know, when you're interested in somebody, you know, it's girlfriend, boyfriend, the first reaction is, oh my gosh, what are, what's everybody going to think about me? Or it's not that I want to go out with this person. It's how's my reputation going to look being with this person. Right. And people have this kind of facade where they don't want to share their true feelings because they don't want to look less important or they're worried about being judged by other people and they right. pretend to be something that they're not. Do you think there's a connection that people carry that over into the workplace sometimes? Oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's guaranteed the amount of people that are still carrying trauma from high school and junior high in their work now is quite significant. You know, I mean, I, I ask people this all the time, like, who are you trying to impress? You know, who are you trying to impress right now? Because if you're trying to impress someone that you won't care about in five years, why are you doing that? You did that in high school. How did that work out for you? You don't even think of those people in high school anymore. So why are we always spending our time trying to impress people that we don't even really care about? Right. You know, Viola Davis says this quote, like, with each decision you make, you either claim who you are or you end up chasing your worth for the rest of your life. How many people do you know right now that are chasing their worth, that are looking for external validation, that are like, you know, like I got to I got to sound smart at the meeting or I have to make more money than everybody else or, you know, I got to look impressive. And it's just like, dude, like, <laughs> you know, one of the biggest regrets of the dying is is I wish I had the courage to live the life that I wanted to live, not the life that others expected of me. So it's just like 
people on their deathbed are warning us, like, don't do work this way. Like, show up. And as my friend Stephen Worley says, like, get paid to be yourself. And how do you get paid to be yourself? You be more of yourself and you tell people what work you love to do most and do that work and then you'll get paid to do it. But I think a lot of us are, you know, stuck, as Gay Hendricks says, in our zone of excellence, stuff we're, we're really good at, but we, you know, we don't really care if we do it there or not, instead of being in our zone of genius, which is the work where you forget about time. It's the work where if you weren't getting paid to do it, you'd do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like the movie Office Space, right? If you had a million dollars, what would you do for a living? <laughs> right. I love that movie, by the way. So do you Such think- a good movie. Yeah, it is, right? Do you, yeah, do you think Donald Trump would benefit from more play? You think, you think he's wound up a little too tight and this would benefit him? Well, I mean, we they talk about, you know, Dr. Stuart Brown talks about like the opposite of play is depression, right? And if you look at, you know, someone like Donald Trump, he doesn't even have a dog. Like a lot of people- <laughs> A lot of people get dogs actually to incorporate more play into it. So, you know, you learn, like when you're a kid, you know, you learn how to solve problems, how to be empathetic, how to be compassionate, how to uh, make connections with people all by playing. Um, and when Dr. Stuart Brown was studying the, the minds of like a lot of um this is going to sound crazy, but he was studying the minds of a lot of serial killers and just people that were suffering, you know, a lot of criminals that were suffering from huge amounts of depression. He found it was because in their play history, they didn't play a lot. They, they didn't have a lot of interaction with other people. And you even like, he even did a study with rats, you know, where you have rats that are like able to intermingle and play throughout their life. And then he did another one where he took, some rats away and then they were isolated. And then when they brought them back, they weren't able to interact with other people. So like play is crucial to our existence. It's almost as important as eating, sleeping, and love. It makes you think, right? Like in school, all those kids who were never picked for kickball or no mm -hmm. kids wanted to play with them. Like they wanted to be included, but you know, the, the kids are cruel and they didn't. You wonder how that affects people later on in life. Right. It like totally shapes what they do, right? You know, like there's now right now a resurgence of like nerdy people, right? Like nerds are now the, the you know, cool, right? Yeah. Like, you know, they're the ones that are making like Transformers and, you know, Game of Thrones and all the things that people are actually enjoying. But a lot of those people went through some really hard times during junior high and high school. But now they, now because they're pursuing their play, right? Now they are, they are, making such amazing things that are actually helping us to cope, you know, during 2020. Like I think of the guy that made, that's currently producing the Mandalorian. He also made Marvel stuff before he made Marvel stuff. He was an actor. So like, you know, like people are play is what's actually getting us through 2020. It really is. You know, I mean, just last week I was, people were asking me, Brian, you sound hoarse. You know, I was working like 13 hours a day, which is ridiculous. And I was so stressed and I remember just going outside saying, you know, let me go out and play with my, my daughter. Mm -hmm. And we just made up games, ran around and, you know, we played with a ball or we played board game and all the cares in the world went away. The stress level dropped. Yeah. I went back in and I was totally realigned and I realized what's more important. And I prioritized it was just so much better. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just, I'm living proof of this. So yeah. let me ask you this, Jeff, if you, when you went out and on your own to do this, right, you formed 
Rediscover Your Play. I would love to hear about your first pitch. How did you define play to that organization? How receptive were they? Or is it like that deer in the headlights moment? Um, It wasn't only because I had relationships with a lot of the companies that I had already done a lot of team building events with. But if I was to think of when I first reached out to companies, this was, was interesting. Here, I'll tell you this. This is an interesting story. So... I created, while I was doing this Lego thing, I cre- I invested in a cafe um, and I knew nothing about cafes. And as I'm saying this, anyone that's listening right now is like, oh, that was a horrible idea. And you know what? You're right. You're right. It was a horrible idea, but I invested in it and I believed in it. And I, I put six figures behind it and it failed miserably and it, and it went bankrupt. Right. And, uh, you know, I had to pay off a lot of like debtors and things like that. And I paid off a lot of my things like, you know, and I thought it would crush me forever. And what was interesting is when I finally paid off all the debts and it took a couple of years to do it. And, you know, then I was like, man, I'm still around. Like, I'm still like here. Like it didn't destroy me. So then I got like, I was like, man, there's no way in which I could fail more miserably than that. So then I started just reaching out to all these like companies because maybe I think at the time we had worked with maybe Visa and a couple others, but not that many. And I was like, I'm going to reach out to the top companies and I'm going to work with these companies. And if they reject me, who cares? You know, so I was like sending out like 100, 200 cold emails like a week you know, and just being like rejection. I don't care. Oh, rejection. I don't care. And I remember even watching a Marvel movie, like one of the Avenger movies and seeing the VP of creative services on the scroll when the movie ended and being like, I'm going to reach out to that person and I'm going to talk to that person. And I just reached out to them via LinkedIn and they got back to me that day. And I was like, man, wait a minute. This is not that hard. Like, that's awesome. you know, like this is, and I wasn't getting rejected as I, as much as I thought I would. And I was like, dude, this is, this is easy, easier than I thought, right? You know, and and that's kind of been my approach. Like, you know, just to let you know, I wanted to play in my marketing of my organization, Rediscover Your Play. And I was like, okay, how do I do this in a way that I enjoy it? Because I already know the standard marketing and I'll do the standard marketing, but what's something fun that I want to do? So I asked myself that in like April, May, and it was like, you love talking to people. Okay, sweet. So let's do some podcasts. So then guess what? I reached out to 400 podcasters and now I've done maybe 87 podcasts in the last seven months. Like it's just been, and the whole time it's just been fun. And people are like, well, what are you doing? It's just like, I don't know. Just I'm doing it because it's really enjoyable. And, you know, I get to communicate my message out to people and I just really love this medium. So I'm going to do this until it's not fun anymore. And then I'll do something else. But like, this is how you can play in your marketing, your sales and what you do, like pursue the things that are interesting to you, as long as they're achieving the bigger goal that you're trying to get to and see where that takes you. And you save the best for last, Jeff, because we're kindred spirits, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you know, even though you failed in that venture, the knowledge that you gained is was priceless. Mm-hmm. And you gain that resilience. You realize, hey, listen, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to will it into existence. I'm going to work harder. And you made those adjustments and look at you now. It's unbelievable. I'm very proud of you. Yeah. yeah and, and 
And even thinking about what rejection is, right? We think we're getting rejected when they send that email back or, you know, they don't pick up your phone call, whatever. But it's really like, there's so many other reasons. I was talking to this actor once that finally realized this after he had done like a thousand auditions and he goes, it could be something arbitrary, like they were having a bad day. You know, you're not the right fit right now, but you might be the right fit later. And it's and if you think about it, the people that have thrived the most or the companies that have thrived the most in 2020 continue to just come back. They they are willing to fail constantly, and that's how they are successful. You know, it's the whole IDO model of like fail faster, succeed sooner. Like own the failures, feel that they're not personally to you, and you can create something really amazing. Amen to that. I love it. Now, Jeff, give me an example of one of the exercises you do at your group sessions. I'd love to hear about this. Yeah, sure. So I was just running this for a biomedical company. It was all about getting their staff into flow. Um, And it was called Your Future is Where Your Fun Is. I run this with my colleague, Lauren Yee. And what we do is we ask people, what did you love to do as a kid? Right. You know, so for example, with Lauren, she loved to play sardines, which is this amazing hide and seek game. It's the reverse hide and seek where someone hides and then other people look for that person that's hiding. Everyone looks for that person. And if you find that person, you hide with them and then you pack in like sardines until you now have eight people stuck in a corner being like, be quiet. No one say anything. You know, so it's hilarious. You should do it with adults. It's so awesome. Right. But the reason she loved playing sardines, you know, we broke down the play values behind that. So she loved the creative aspect aspect of it. She loved the collaborative aspect. She loved the connection part. So then we identify what the play values of what that person has. And then we try to tie it into what is the work that you do now that incorporates that? Oh, 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 you do that with like your clients and connecting with your clients. And then we tell their their team leaders, what percentage of that work are they doing right now? What percentage of that flow work are they doing? Oh, you're only connecting with your clients, like maybe 10 to 15% of your like given week. Okay. How do we increase that? to like from 15 to 20%. Maybe that's only one to two extra hours. But when you are able to get your staff into that flow state more, it has a ripple effect on all their other work. They're, they're, they're much more productive, you know, and especially if they do their flow work to start their day, it has an exponential use. You know, it really has this huge impact on all the other work that they have and what they can do. That's wonderful. I love that. Now, you know, certain people, they're very timid or hesitant. How receptive have people been to your exercises? You know, are, are they hesitant or do you have to get them, you know, liquored up before to no, <laughs> actually I mean, try it? It's a, it's a, it's a wide variety. It's just like being on a playground, right? There's some people that are really into it. Some people that are like tentative at first. And there are other people that are like, I, I'm not down to play right now. And that's the magic of play, right? Is you have the choice to play or not play. So sometimes people are not into it. So we'll just work with the group that is there. And then you'd be surprised, even the people that are not in it at first, start to see the energy that's in the room. They start to see that people are like, oh, well, this is what you did as a kid. Oh, this is what you did as a kid. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, wait, here are the ideas. I have a bunch of ideas. I can tell you about how you can do that now at work. 
they start to feel it. And then they're like, okay, I got to get in this. I, because again, right. People are attracted to the fun. The future is where the fun is. So the more that your staff is having fun at work, the, you know, what you said earlier, right. Just like Zappos, the higher the retention is, the more engaged they are, the more comfortable they are to being themselves at work. You know, right now, 85% of people are not engaged at work, you know, that was a study done before COVID. So just imagine how disengaged people are. But you as a team leader, if you go up to your staff and you're like, what is the work that you love to do most? Okay, let's figure out how you can do one extra hour of that. They, it communicates to them that you care, that you actually see them. And then if you need examples of like, what's the benefit of allowing them to do that flow work, Look at Google with their 20% rule. They give their staff a fifth of their time to pursue work that is curious to them as long as it helps Google. And with that 20% rule, guess what has come out from that? Google Meet came from that. Gmail came from that. Billion dollar ventures came from allowing their staff to play a little bit. Yes, you can't give your staff a fifth of their time to do that, but you can give them 5% more and see what happens. No, absolutely. No, I, I agree completely. I always tell my staff, if you're not having fun, there's really no point. Right. Uh, now, Jeff, what actually happens to your brain in a state of flow or a state of play? Sure. So, so you know, you have your prefrontal cortex, and that's where your inner critic is. And your inner critic is there to protect you, you know, especially like during caveman times and, you know, when you had to fight tigers and everything. But now that it doesn't exist, your inner critic just runs amok. And that is what, at the same time, it's protecting you. A lot of times it's getting in your way. Your inner critic is the one that's always like, oh, you know, I have to impress these people. What happens though, you know, when your brain is in the beta state, your inner critic is quite loud. But when you go into the flow state, you go through something called hypnofrontinality, where your brain, your prefrontal cortex, actually, a part of it shuts down. This is why time gets distorted. Um, and when it shuts down, your inner critic starts to dissipate. Your implicit mind appears. You become highly creative. You get this shot of dopamine, you know, so you get super excited and you become very curious. And then instead of seeing the world the way a lot of adults see it, where they're very results oriented, where it's just like A to B to C, you start to see all of the opportunities in front of you. And you know you've been in this state because when you travel, you're like, that when you're like just saying yes and everything and be like, yes, I will do this. Yes, I will do that. Yes, I'll hop on this moped. Yes, I'll take go to this deserted island. You know, yes, I'll see the Aurora Borealis. Like you're just saying yes to everything and you're just open to the adventure, you know, and you've also felt it when you're doing work where you forget about time, you know? So like, that's actually what's happening in your brain. And we can, we can't always, we can't force ourselves into that state, but we can create the the um, the aspect, the traits around us, the surroundings in order to get close to that. I love that. That's awesome. Now, I have to ask you, Jeff, you know, you talk about toxic people in the workplace, right? We've all worked with them. And they're, they're, mm -hmm. it's, it's usually if there's a great environment, like I mentioned OpenX before, you know, 98% of the people got along and were great. There was only that very, very small percentage of, of bad apples. And they usually weed themselves out in an environment like that. Right. But for most people, you know, they have to deal with these toxic people in the workplace. 
How do we identify who they are and how do we deal with them through play? So the way you identify them, usually you simply need to ask people in the room or like in your, in your staff, who is the, who's the a-hole? You know, yeah. most people wow, already know cool, who huh? that is, right? <laughs> and if you need more signs, it's just like when this person joins meetings, do you go, oh, you know, like when they walk into the room, do you go, oh, you know, like, like, do they suck the energy out of the room? And if they are, then that's probably the person, you know, the, the uh, you know, when, when they, when they show up, do you like, be, are you like more worried about what you're going to say? So the biggest way in which to address them, and 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 I go through like this four-step process of addressing, you know, a-holes or toxic people directly, right? Um, is it this is all about setting boundaries because if you don't, you allow them to run amok and then they can run businesses to the ground, you know, or maybe countries to the ground, right? Like, you know, they you you have to set those boundaries early on. And if someone's just like, well, you know, do toxic people, does it really matter? Well, here, let me tell you why, right? So SHRM did a study, that's the HR organization here in the US, um, in October of 2019. And they found out that Fortune 500 companies have lost $223 billion, billion with a B, in the last five years alone, just due to toxic people, meaning turnover was that bad. And those are only the companies that are willing to admit that they had a toxic person. And Simon Sinek talks a lot about the brilliant jerk, you know, the person that makes a lot of revenue, but it's just mean to everyone else. And he he speaks about how in, you know, the Navy SEALs, they'll never pick the brilliant jerk, regardless of how brave they are, how smart they are, how, you know, strong they are. They don't bring them into the team because they know that they'll destroy the chemistry. And you've even seen this at sports when the top player leaves and then the team gets better. Like Ken Griffey Jr. left the Mariners. They got better. Alex Rodriguez did. They got better. Like this is like, you've seen it over and over again. So that's the, that's the first part, right? So here are the steps that you can do to actually address that toxic person. So the easiest one is the first do it at meetings where you're going to start sending, setting boundaries, you know? And what I mean by that is usually that toxic person is taking up 60, 70, 80% of the meeting, just talking all the time, right? You know, just filling it up with their words. So you turn to your friends and your, or your colleagues and you go, look, we're going to start taking over this meeting. So for the next three to six months, you are getting their back. You're like, when Samantha's talking and she gets cut off by Chad, we're going to use Chad. Sorry, Chad, but we're going to use you as the toxic person. You know, hey, Chad, um, Samantha's talking. You know, let me hear. Let's, can we hear what she has to say? You know, you know, like you, you start taking it over the meetings and you start setting that boundary and start occupying more of that time. So that's like the roundabout way of dressing them. Then there's the direct way where you go right up to Chad, or if you don't feel comfortable talking to him directly, you get your colleagues to, to approach with you and you don't attack Chad's character, but you do address Chad's behavior and the impact that it's having. So you say to him, hey, Chad, when you cut off Samantha and then Brian and then later on Jeff, you know, in the meeting, 
The impact you're having is you're communicating to us that you don't want to hear what we have to say. Is that the impact you're trying to do? Is that your intent? Is that what you're trying to do? And, you know, maybe Chad's an engineer and just doesn't know how to communicate. He might be like, I didn't know I was doing that, right? A lot of times toxic people don't know how toxic they're being, you know, and then you might be able to give them pointers. But maybe that toxic person's going to be like, F you, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm Chad. I get to do whatever I want. I'm untouchable. So when that happens, that's when you have to either approach their supervisor or if their supervisor is also an a-hole, their supervisor's supervisor and talk about the impact that it's having on the team. Like, hey, because Chad is the way that he is, we've had four people quit in the last like six months. I know Chad brings in you know, $1.2 million a year, but those four people we lost, that cost us $1.5 million. So then you're talking from like a standpoint of results and being like, this is the impact that is having, right? Now, if they still support Chad, that toxic person, then you have a choice where you're like, well, maybe is this the right organization for me to be at? But then the hardest one, the hardest um, thing to do is to address that inner critic, that inner Chad, that inner a-hole, that because the reason why Chad triggers you is because a part of you believes what they have to say. Part of you believes you're an imposter. Part of you believes you shouldn't share in meetings. Part of you believes you shouldn't get paid as much as Chad. But if you're able to address that within yourself and you're like, wait a minute, I should get paid more than him. Wait a minute, I should be Chad's boss. And you start believing that the next time Chad's super rude to you, you can be like, Chad, don't ever disrespect me in that way. And once they say that, it's like, oh, dude, Brian just stepped up to Chad. Oh, look, now Jeff's stepping up to Chad. And then people all of a sudden start getting brave and they start stepping up to him and setting boundaries. And all of a sudden, Chad can't act the way he's been acting for the last few years. And then it's sucking all the oxygen out of the room for him. And then he has a choice. He either changes his behavior or he leaves. There you go. And as I would say, Chad can kiss my ass. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, there we go. But uh, now, Jeff, before we wrap up, just a, a one quick question here. Yeah. There's been a lot of focus on working efficiently, right? Working smarter, not harder. And now, of course, yeah. because of the lockdowns, you know, there's no commuting. So people can focus in and lock in and work and, and get out. So my question is the eight-hour workday. It's it's a, a very controversial Ooh. topic. I know there's an author called Tim Ferriss that talks about this. What are your thoughts on the eight hour workday? What do you think? Yeah. So I was fascinated with the eight hour workday and I was like, where does it come from? Right. So I was like, let me just do a little bit of research. Um, and I found out that it was a Welsh labor activist named Robert Owen that invented it back in 1817, like 200 and I don't know, three years ago. Right. And the whole premise was eight hours of work, eight hours of leisure, eight hours of sleep. Right. You know, and then no one touched that idea for over 100 years. Um, and then back in the Great Depression, 1926, Henry Ford couldn't get enough people on his assembly line to work um, because like, you know, they were working them 12 to 15 hours and people were literally dying on the assembly line. So he found out about the eight hour workday and 
implemented it, and then he doubled the salaries of everyone because that was the only way in which he could get staff there. And it caused a ruckus in the car industry and just most industries because people were all about like, we got to squeeze as much out of people as possible. We got to treat them like machines. And he found when he turned it to an eight-hour workday, they were more productive. And when he paid them more, they were more productive, right? So we should learn from history. But frankly, since 1926, nothing has changed about the eight-hour workday. 90, what is it, you know, 97 years or whatever it is? Like, what are we doing? 94 years? So, so another study recently done found out that most people cannot be more productive than for two hours and 53 minutes of a given day. And our workday has now extended to 8.8 hours. And some people probably are like, I work like 10, 12 hours. So here's my question. If people can only be productive for three to four hours of the day, what in the world are they doing for the other five hours, right? They're doing, right? (laughs) right, they're doing BS meetings, right? We're doing a lot of wasteful meetings. We are doing busy work to make it seem like we're doing work. So we're doing work that doesn't even really matter. We're on social media. We're getting coffee. And now when we're, you know, at home, maybe we're binge watching Netflix, but we're just so disengaged. No, we haven't really looked at what to do differently. So as a team leader, we have to be asking ourselves, if I can only get three to four good hours out of my staff, what is the work that I want them to do? And it should be the work that they're best at. It should be their flow work. Because when you're doing that, that is actually communicating that, that you care about them. And they're going to they're gonna reciprocate that. Just like when he, you know, like when Henry Ford, like double people's salaries, like when you were giving them the work that they, their zone of genius, they're going to produce the best stuff for you. But you have to trust them that they're going to do that. You have to empower them the way Tony Shea at, at Zappos did, you know. And and if you don't do that, then what you're going to do is you're going to be having meetings about how, you know, it's really dumb that, um, you know, I just heard about this organization that is sending DVDs to people. That's never going to work. And now they're talking about, you know, um, you know, showing movies online, you know. And then that's that was what blockbuster conversations were. And they're not around anymore. And you don't right. want to be one of those obsolete organizations. No, absolutely. I agree 100%. And it comes down to, like you said, trust. And that's a whole other topic in and of itself, Jeff, with these companies, yeah. not trusting their employees. Jeff, it's been fantastic. Any last bits of information you'd like to share with the audience or any final thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah. I mean, there's two things that I could say, but, but let me say this. So, so... A lot of people are like, yeah, this play stuff is really great and whatever. And, you know, I, I, I believe it to a point, but like, how do I figure out my own play? Right. So one suggestion that I have, because I actually have two suggestions. Let me say, them. I'll say them really quick. First suggestion. Let's go really quick with this one. First suggestion is you have to figure out how to play. In order to play, you have to calm yourself down. In order to calm yourself down, you have to identify what soothes you, what what calms you, right? So I get my best ideas in the shower. Maybe some people walk, other people like, you know, play basketball, but what is the thing where you get infused with a bunch of ideas? So first identify that. Once you identify that, then I recommend you get bored. And what I mean by that is block out social media, block out Netflix, you know, and what I mean by that is only for one to two hours, you're on your phone for five hours a day, you can block out one to two hours, 
and stop getting inundated by information because the information you're getting inundated by is telling you that it's, you're not enough. And it's also preventing you from being creative. So if you can quiet your mind, you can get bored. Remember when you were a kid, your best ideas were when you were bored. And then finally, when you get bored, you can start to strengthen that intuition muscle and listen to yourself. And you'll start to hear this whisper that's going to tell you a crazy, fun, but also scary idea and follow that curiosity, follow that whisper. It's going to whisper things like, Start a podcast, create a video, reach out to that person you've always been wanting to reach out to, start that side business, like do that thing that you're super scared to do and you follow that curiosity. So that's one way in which you can tap into play. But the second way to you can tap in is you reach out to your friends and you ask them these two questions. What value do I bring to your life? Because a lot of times we don't know what value we bring. And second question, when have you seen me most alive? And I ask that question because of Howard Thurman, who said, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is for more people to come alive. So when you ask those two questions, what value do I bring to your life? What makes me come most alive? And you get answers from three to five of your closest friends. They're going to give you all this information of all these ways that you can play. And once you have all that information from you being bored and from your friends, then you have plenty to work with in order to figure out how to get into flow and how to play more in your life and bring more fulfillment to your life. I love it, Jeff. Now, very last question. It's a personal question just to get to know you a little bit better. Yeah. You're going to be on an island for the rest of your life, okay? You can only bring one book, one movie, and one album. What would they be? Ooh, one book, one movie, one album. Ah, that is tough. <laughs> Let's start with the book. So I think the book that I would bring would be uh, Gay Hendrick's Big Leap, which is all about addressing your inner critic self-sabotage and tapping into your own zone of genius. Um, the big leap from Gay Hendrix. What was the second one? Second one would be movie. What movie? I mean, I mean, a part of me is leaning towards saying big, but you know, if I couldn't bring big, it would, it would be a toss up between Avengers Endgame or, or dark Knight with, uh, with the Joker. Nice. And the then album? album. Yep. That's a Ooh. tough one for me. I would probably be like an anthology from Prince. Oh, there you go. That's, that's great. Jeff, it's been amazing. How do people get in touch with you, connect with you and rediscover your play? Sure. So, you know, if you want to see a lot of my ridiculous videos, I'm at Jeff Harry plays J E F F H A R R Y P L A Y S. Or you can come to my website where all my play experiments are um, and go to rediscoveryourplay.com, click on the Let's Play button, and we can hop on a call and we can figure out how you can kick ass in the, this world and make a huge impact using play. I love it, Jeff. It's been wonderful. It's been insightful. It's been fun. Keep up the good work and let's stay in touch. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. You got it. Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line. 